0: Maria,
1: what about you? You're always like, yeah, like, <laughs> like, stand straight, proud. Where you can just be whoever you want. Get ready to dream.
2: About
0: what happened to her? Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another special episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John, and with me, as always, my co host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today?
2: I'm okay. John, how are you? I'm good. It's been a while. Yeah. Our last episode was a roundup of our favorite films of 2021.
0: That's right. And of course, this was planned because we said that we would cover, likely cover this festival, which I haven't mentioned yet. But uh, today's episode will be about the Osaka Asian Film Festival, which we had already mentioned. And this will likely be our last special before we actually officially start season three of our podcast.
2: Yeah. So uh, we're going to go out on some of the latest films from the last uh, year or so even this year some of them yep some of these are well, a lot of the films that the festival will premieres absolutely
0: uh, all right so uh, as I mentioned today will be uh, a, we'll we'll talk about our favorite films and some honorable mentions of the uh, Osaka film face uh, Osaka Asian Film Festival, which just ended as of the time of this recording. I believe today was the last day, and the awards were issued, which we will talk about. But before we get into that, we'll uh, go over our usual uh, uh, preamble segments, and we'll first talk about our media consumption since last time we, we spoke. Uh, so, of course, it's been a long time. I'm sure you, just like I, have uh, consumed a lot of uh, media but what are some of the highlights that you'd like to mention to our listeners
2: that are uh maybe worth recommending? I I've just been focusing on Osaka Asian Film Festival films. <laughs> all right, and all right. Coming And I uh,
0: believe coming... you were you will I'll you know, I'll give you a chance to talk about this, but you've also more than just uh coverage. You have been working for them as I think you briefly mentioned last time.
2: Yeah, I've been working uh for the festival since 2017 and um uh, you can find a uh, uh, lot of what I do on the festival website, uh, basically uh, story synopses. Apart from that, um, I'm coming to the end of Jean d'Arc uh, on the PSP, um, just over-leveling my characters that, <laughs> so I can crush the final boss. Um, I've been playing it on and off, but I stopped due to the festival. And so now the festival's over, I'm going to bring it to an end and start a new game.
0: I don't know if you ever... Uh, if you. Uh i've i've been hearing a lot about this new game called elden ring which is a uh, dark souls type
2: of game yeah it's from from software the guys that do dark souls and demon souls and it's a game i'm quite interested in playing i've always uh sort of has an interest in dark souls especially the lore and the the atmosphere and world building Uh, it does but the combat has put me off because uh, it's a difficult game yeah yeah you need to master um enemy attack patterns and i don't know if i have the patience for that but elden ring uh gives you uh uh sort of more uh abilities to tackle enemies laterally so and you don't actually have to engage uh enemies um in a linear manner either you can uh, go off because it's an open world game you can go off in different directions and um, explore and then come back when you're stronger
0: yeah and it's uh i mean the only thing i know about the game other than it's by the same creators, is that he was uh george r. r martin was involved in the story uh which is a bit Strange because the, because these types of games are sort of notorious for having little to
2: no story. Uh a lot of the story um comes out in the details of the world. The the, the world building, yes. Yeah, so it could be that he came up with sort of like a an overarching narrative and then I suppose so, yeah, yeah, Miyazaki and his team um went on from that.
0: Okay. Uh, all right, so anything else?
2: Um, I suppose the next film I'll watch, it might be, uh, Sword of Doom or Revolver. (laughs) The, uh, 1970s Italian movie, uh, with, ah, who's the Irish actor? Oh, I've forgotten his name. Oh, he was in The Devils and The Brood. I would not be familiar with him. Oh, he was, uh, never mind. (laughs) That, that's, is, that would be the
0: type of movie that, um, a uh, supposedly Leo DiCap- DiCaprio's character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood goes to make, you know, in Italy.
2: Yeah, Rick Dalton.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the the where he finds he finally finds kind of the success that he's been uh, coveting.
2: Operazioni Dynamite. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed. Oh, okay. That uh, that that's a familiar name. Yeah. So I watched the first. I I started watching the first ten minutes, and I got gripped by it, and I ended up watching thirty minutes before I went back to Osaka Asian Film Festival. So I want to finish the film off.
0: Okay. All right. So in terms of uh, my media consumption, I finally managed to watch Drive my car. Uh, by um, what's the director's name? Ryosuke Yamaguchi, Yamaguchi, Ry- Ryosuke Yamaguchi, Hamaguchi. Hamaguchi, based on a story, either a story or a novel by Haruki Murakami. It's a short story. A short story, yes. Uh, and um, so so I, I don't know. It's there's a uh, there's a lot that can be said about the the film, but I think the highest praise that I can give it is that even though it takes a uh, some you know, liberties with Murakami's material, which I haven't read, but I, I've read an analysis on the differences and they seem to be relatively extensive. It does very much uh, successfully is able, because I've read a lot about Mur- of Murakami and sort of he has a very recognizable style, a very recognizable tone about his writing. And the film definitely goes a long way to to capture... Uh, to capture Murakami's kind of very, very atmosphere in a cinematic format, and uh, of course Murakami has had a few adaptations. So the 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 bur- film Burning by Lee Chang Dong in 2018, I think, uh, that was also based on Murakami's story, but it did not feel like a Murakami story. I at least it didn't feel to me that way. And uh, the film there was another one in in the early twenty tens. Norwegian uh, Woods. Norwegian Wood which I, it was a, a a Vietnamese director whose name I forget at the moment but he is a well known Vietnamese director. He he wrote and directed The Scent of the Green Papaya which is one of his uh, better known films. Uh, but he also did Norwegian Wood. That also was, you know, did a good job at capturing I think Murakami's Murakami's tone but I think Drive My Car did a much much better better job at that. Um other than that I'm not I don't know I'm not sure that that the film will stay with me as much
2: as I think the hype would suggest. Uh do you think it has a possibility of winning the best motion picture of the year or best achievement in directing or adapted screenplay or international feature film? Oh no at not Yale at Academy all. Awards?
0: Not at all. I I I'm almost certainly that it will win I'm almost certain that it will win the foreign category. But I would be extremely, extremely surprised if it won any of the, you know, uh,
2: non-foreign categories, for lack of a better term. So you've seen more of the Oscar contenders than I have. Of the Oscar films, or of the films in contention for the Oscars, uh, which ones do you think are, are a lock for Best Director?
0: I think The Power of the Dog, which was made, was my number one of the year. I think that has a good chance. I think I think for either either best picture or best director or maybe both um I forget did who won the golden globes um yeah the power of the dog won the the best the, that one so I think I think this is one of the cases where the golden globes are a fairly good predictor uh I don't think Belfast that could also that has uh has some cachet but I don't think it's it's it, it it's not i mean the, you know of course the oscars are not just about the quality there's a su- something about the film that kind of attracts oscars and vice versa uh and i think the power of the dog is just the kind of film that that is most likely to win and i think it's a very good film too mm. but yeah but drive my car i doubt i i doubt it. I, I didn't I, I forgot he was nominated in those categories
2: yeah other films include king richard um will smith's won some acting awards for that see licorice pizza by paul thomas anderson I, which i have not seen so so i, I don't want to speculate
0: yeah uh, but yeah don't look up like i said i, I rated it highly uh in belfast i i consider those movies very good but um they just don't uh, i i don't know that they have that sort of thing that people look into when uh, you know choosing a best picture oscar
2: yeah how how about June?
0: no i mean i mean it's it's i i i rate it a lot uh, lower than, well, not a lot lower, but somewhat lower than uh, you know, the average critical community. Uh, so, so, my, so, that's, so my opinion is a little bit biased because I, I didn't enjoy that movie as much as others did. But even even taking that into account, I don't think Dune has a lot of chance into to actually making it. And, of course, statistically uh, uh, films for which have no best director nomination rarely win be- the best picture and Dune doesn't have one. So there's that uh yeah west side story i've heard i've haven't seen it but it seemed to be better than what amounts to a remake would simply suggest so so west side story maybe but i doubt it it doesn't it doesn't seem like it it's it's uh it's gonna win
2: so power of the dog it is i i
0: that that's my my official prediction and you heard it here if it wins uh you all owe me money Okay. no, I I think I think that's from just uh, the rumors and some some. I mean, I don't I don't really follow Twitter that closely, but the few things that my eye has caught seem to suggest that other people agree with me.
2: Well, we'll find out uh, on March 27th. Okay, so a week from today. Yep. (laughs) Okay, so
0: yeah, Drive My Car. Good film. I actually I wrote. So as I was watching it kind of just to finish my thoughts on Drive My Car. I think the the, metaphor, the the title of the film I think is is kind of a a very good metaphor for what I I thought it's a 3 hour movie and it it's not it's a 3 hour movie that kind of goes by fast in a sense but in some other ways it doesn't go by fast it's like the film itself is like a very long enjoyable car ride but not every bit of it is enjoyable it's you know a car ride you know it can be enjoyable but it's still just a car ride you're just sitting in the back seat watching at the sides go by you know there's 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 an upper limit to how much fun you can have out of that. Let, let, that's I think that's the perfect metaphor for how I felt about the film.
2: Okay. Let me be glib and say perhaps a 4DX screening of uh, Driving My Car would be more interesting. A wa- uh, oh, yeah, about with the actual... Uh, Movement uh, in the uh, chairs.
0: Yeah, but I mean, there's a lot of driving, but there's a lot more into it about. Uh, it's not all about driving. It's essentially it's uh, the 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 main character doesn't like other people driving his car, but he he has to give up that privilege, uh, and he has to allow someone else to drive his car. That's kind of the 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 main
2: premise of the film. I hope to watch it soon, so uh, perhaps episode one of season three, I'll be able to share my thoughts on it.
0: Of course, yes. Okay, so just to go over a couple of other items. So I, I, I rewatched the series Babylon 5, which I might have mentioned in this podcast. Again, I'm a big fan of that series. And I, I just decided to rewatch it because it's a very politically charged series for as unexpected as that is for a 90s science fiction show uh, with aliens and all that kind of other stuff. It is, I think it, it does really reflect a lot of what's going on in the world right now. So I, I kind of that made me rewatch it and I was not disappointed. I think that's a series that, you know, it's it's a 90s science fiction show with bad CGI. Well, bad by today's standards, at least. Uh, and I think still that's that's a that's a series that everyone should watch because I think it's a fantastic show.
2: Yeah, I watched it during the 90s when it was oh, Okay. So okay. Oh, I I actually that's funny. I've heard that that was quite popular in the UK at the time of it airing. Yeah, it used to come on Channel 4 late at night. And uh yeah, I still remember like Captain Sheridan and the uh, Minbari, is it? Yes, the Minbari are one of the the alien races. When you say political, is it is it um sort of like reflecting what was going on in the world at the time of like the um, Balkans?
0: Yes, so it was it was a combination. So one of the actresses, so Mira Furlan, who Actually, she died recently. Mm. Uh, she was she. People might know her from playing the for for playing the French woman in Lost. Okay, but she also it was uh, she was she was one of the Mimbari basically in that show. Uh, she was a refugee of the Balkan War, so she left the Balkans just as the Croatian, Croatian uh, the war between Serbia and Croatia, left. Uh, so there was uh, so there was a lot of allegory to that. But there was also a lot you know of allegory to a lot of things, including the fall of the Soviet Union, the Cold War, and actually world war two so it was it was a very it was a, a very much an examination of history and how history repeats itself
1: mm.
0: and all of those sort of like ideas are reflected in the show
1: mm.
0: and there's also a very very sort of scary uh scary depiction of of course the the in that show the there's a an earth government so the government of the earth is one government uh there's this very very scary depiction of how that government sort of slowly descends into totalitarianism mm. and they kind of have to that's that's a, an important subplot it's not only about the aliens it's so about the the earth itself and they have to kind of like save it from that i guess
2: yeah i remember one episode or a couple of episodes um earth if- Earth fleets attack Babylon Five itself. Yes, so there's, there's that happens. Yeah. So, All right. So, and it Go. comes from uh, J. Michael Straczynski, who went on to do um, Crash. Did he? I I was not aware of that. Which Crash? Like Crash the 2004 movie? Not the Cronenberg one. <laughs> oh, really? Not that one. It was the uh, Matt Dylan one. He wrote. So
0: he wrote the first. So. He's mostly known for a bunch of 80s TV shows before Babylon 5, which people made, like he he was a, the head writer of uh, Murder, She Wrote. Okay. Uh, so that's a well-known series, although fewer people remember today, but it was very popular at the time. I think it's still a good series for the few episodes that I've seen here and there. Uh, you know, like a, a run-of-the-mill, you know, detective-style mystery, but still pretty good.
2: I, I remember Bab- him for The Real Ghostbusters.
0: Okay. Oh, he did he did write in a bunch of cartoons. Yes, that's true. That's how he got his start actually. Uh, he did write. So Babylon 5 was, you know, uh very well known because it didn't a lot of people uh credited with uh, the uh starting the serialization trend in television, which is not true. Uh there were other other things before it that did it, but it was certainly a, a show that very much popularized Serialized storytelling in television it became a lot a lot more common after it finished running. Yeah, because that the show was essentially one big serialized story. Uh, and he wrote I think he wrote the movie Changeling, which was directed in 2008 by Clint Eastwood, with uh, starring um, Angelina Jolie. An- Angelina Jolie, yes. He wrote the first draft, but he didn't get I don't think he got credit for the movie World War Z. He was involved with that, but I think he was rewritten. But he wrote the first draft, and he also produced or co-created the show *Sense 8 with the uh, Wachowski uh, siblings. Okay. Uh, but I think those are the things that he's mostly known for. I think he's he's worked, you know, outside film and television in comic books and stuff, which uh, people know him more. Uh, but I think in in the visual media, though, those are the things that he's most responsible for.
2: Yeah, I got him confused with Paul Haggis who um ah, okay. was, uh was yeah, like uh the writer creator of Jew South which was also big in the 90s in the UK. I see, I see. I see I've not seen that one. Oh, uh, it's a slice of nostalgia for people who watched it at the time. Okay. And I think that's
0: that's it for our media consumption section. Uh I do understand Jason that you have a few uh items of news that you have written down mostly revolving uh the drive the The continued success of Drive My Car, the movie.
2: Yeah, so uh, last weekend and the weekend before, it was winning major awards. So at the BAFTA Awards in the UK, it won uh, Best Film Not in the English Language, and uh, Hamaguchi was on hand to collect the award. And uh, it sweeped the 45th Japan Academy Film Prize with Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and uh, Best Actor for Hidetoshi Nishijima and Best Cinematography, amongst other categories. And so, yeah, Hamaguchi shared Best Screenplay with uh, Oe Takamasa, who one of his films was at Osaka Asian Film Festival 2022. Uh, nice to meet you, it's called.
0: Just out of curiosity, do you, do you know when
2: the, uh, the Japan Academy Awards were held? I'm sure it was the weekend before last. No, it was last weekend. Do you know? I'm
0: trying. Do you know who happened to? I'm always curious about this. Who won the foreign movie award? Oh, it's um,
2: what's it the latest James Bond film? No time to die.
0: No time. You're right. Yeah, that's that's so something. I'm always fascinated because in this, a lot of these Asian movie awards, like the Hong Kong awards and the Japan awards, and maybe even the Korean equivalents, you know, films that we give them, uh, we don't give them any time of day in our awards. Tend to collect these uh foreign best foreign language awards. Yeah, Minari was nominated, and Nomadland was nominated, so it's it's funny. And Dune was nominated, which is uh although I haven't seen No Time to Die, I don't want to say that it's it's but it's kind of it's kind of funny to see it winning over all these other you know arguably better movies. Mm. Also, I, I just looked it up. So you mentioned the Baftas, The Power of Dog won the best uh, uh best film there too.
2: Yeah, so Drive My Car's been on release for quite a while in the UK since October last year.
0: Has it made it? Because I was able to watch it at you know one of the streaming services. That's why I I didn't it, it did not. Uh, sadly, I was I was on the lookout for it, but as far as like as as far unless I missed it somehow, I it did not make theatrical release in my region. It Was a, admittedly a small town. Yeah, we don't always get the biggest uh, the biggest films, but as far as I could tell, it didn't get here. So I. Was only able to watch it in
2: when it got to streaming. Did it has it gone there yet? So it's still in cinemas in the UK. Oh, interesting. So okay. there are still listings for it. Okay,
0: so maybe maybe it'll be by the time you're done with Osaka, covering the Osaka Film Festival. Maybe you'll uh, you'll still be there when you're trying to to watch it.
2: Yeah, hopefully. Um, but it should be on its way out now, unless the Baftas give it a, a bit of a boost so it keeps going. That's always possible.
0: I know, actually, just, uh, uh, you know, we, we're, we keep uh, procrastinating, but uh, I know in the U.S. that a lot of cinemas immediately before or after the awards, they'll have, they'll re-release movies to, to kind of say Academy Award nominated or Academy Award winner. Yeah. And so sort of they get a, an extra week or so, so that, that always could happen.
2: Ah, Also, it's on BFI player, British Film Institute player, and Curzon Home Cinema as of 14th of February. Oh, nice. So it should still be available for when I come around to watching it. Ha
0: Oh, that's okay. So that's, that's great. There you go. I'll, I'm I'm eager to hear your thoughts about it.
2: Probably nothing uh, as <laughs> sophisticated as your thoughts, but I'll let you know.
0: I think, I think, like I said, I, like some, I, you know, I, I tend to overemphasize either my very good opinions or my very bad opinions. Like I said, I don't want to. I don't want to give the impression that I didn't think it was a great film. I did think it was a great film. I just don't think, at least for me, it didn't live up to that height, like, say, Paradise, uh, Paradise <laughs> Parasite, mm. uh, where, you know, I mean, even t- two years later, three years later, and we're still talking about it. Mm. I don't know that I'll be talking about Drive My Car next year. That's Let's just put it like that.
2: Yeah, I did uh, review Norwegian Wood on my blog, and, uh, yeah, I... I can just about remember watching the film, but I can't remember my opinion to it. So, this reading is going to be very curious. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so unless you have something else, I think that's it for our new segment as well. Uh, No, let's dive right into Osaka Asian Film Festival.
0: Okay. So but this is uh, this is uh, coming. It's being recorded just as the Osaka Film Festival is over, and there's uh, one or two days left in the online portion of the festival. But that'll be over most likely by the time this uh, this episode comes out, and, and uh, the awards have also been sort of been selected, which we'll talk about. Uh, but Jason, I'll put you a little on the spot by asking you to share with us sort of a festival overview. What is the festival about? you know uh, can you tell us a, you know you know something about it a bit of its history and a, you know your role in the festival
2: and you know uh anything that you feel is worth sharing yeah um it initially started out as a Korean Entertainment Film Festival in Osaka in like 2005 but over the years it's uh, expanded its remit to cover all of asia and um that's because it's got a, 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 a experienced programming director uh, um Sozo Taruoka, who's worked across Asia including the Tokyo International Film Festival, and he's a a critic and a writer who specializes in Asian films. And um, this year's edition featured something like 75, 76 films, uh, and it was the largest selection so far. And um, every year it covers um, films from across the Asian diaspora, so you could get works from Hong Kong, Taiwan usual suspects to filmmakers uh, from the asian American community or from the Asian community in Europe, so a couple of years ago we had a Japanese filmmaker who was working and studying in Poland uh, she uh had a film played at the festival uh so my involvement uh started in two thousand and seventeen when I was uh living in Japan at the time it was kind of like uh uh, one of the things i wanted to do when i was in japan was sort of travel around and uh, uh visit different festivals and um so uh i contacted uh osaka asian film festival just offered to um uh, volunteer for them and uh they uh gracefully uh accepted me and uh gave me a place uh as a member of staff and since 2017 i've been writing sort of uh english language information and synopses um and you can see like The synopses on the website itself and in the programs and so every year since 2017 i've returned to japan and um it's part like it's kind of like a a holiday but also in the middle of it is the festival itself so uh it's great to be able to see films from across asia and also contribute to um, the film world and the asian film world by uh being part of the festival
0: and i think you've uh, mentioned that um that of all the festivals that you usually cover or observe, this has some of the better, some of the best titles of the year.
2: Yeah, uh, some festivals can be quite scattershot. They'll like cover all sorts of releases, or they'll load um, films that have commercial potential, ones that are going to be released in a few months' time. Uh, this one tends to go for films... From the indie side of the spectrum, but also have enough features that uh, features from mainstream and big budget productions that you can get a great overview of what uh, cinematic trends are happening in different countries. So, for this year, um, there was a, a grip of really great Taiwanese and South Korean indie movies uh, that played uh, at the festival. But you can also discover stuff from the likes of Philippines as well. Like, Philippines yeah. is a territory, Kazakhstan. That, yeah, Kazakhstan um we even have something from a ukrainian filmmaker as well this year so yeah it's uh like the variety uh is really something to admire but also like in the stories themselves they um there's always a search for interesting stories that capture how people are living right now so you could get stories about sexual minorities um different ethnicities mixing together asian people living in foreign countries and uh, it's a whole wide range of stories Um, and so it's always interesting coming back to the festival and getting something new different styles of stories and also different uh, approaches to stories as well because festival cultivates um, new talents uh, and has good relationships with directors who are up and coming um, or who have established themselves and um, are trying out different things so there's a platform for a variety of different talents. But there's also like a place for uh, Hong Sang-soo as well in like a special screening section. So yeah, it's just the variety. It's just fantastic. Yes, and I noticed that
0: uh, uh, there were also short films intermixed. So usually festivals will have like a separate short film category, either competing or non-competing. But I noticed that in, uh, well, not all. I mean, there are others one that do it like this, where the short films are kind of intermixed with the features uh, in various categories.
2: Yeah, like Rain Dance will have a short played before a feature, and so it's like two birds, one song, whereas uh, Osaka Asian Film Festival has uh, short film programs, and this year was, I think it was the largest um, collection of short films uh, available.
0: And what were what were the categories that uh, you know? There's obviously the competition category, but what are some of the other categories that were in the in the festival
2: this year? We well, we've got the traditional ones like the indie forum and Hosen, um categories, which focus on Japanese indies, and you've got a special focus on Hong Kong, and uh, there's also a special category dedicated to Taiwan and uh, new action Southeast Asia. So it covers a huge area and you can have um all sorts of films from Indonesia, Philippines, um South Korea and uh there's always a mixture of uh features and uh shorts put together so I, there's a thematic element to some of this as well so there is an extra effort to well during the selection process it became so. Uh, You know, you could detect trends in how filmmakers were tackling blurring lines in sort of like ethnicity and um, nationality and uh, sexuality as well. And so you can pick out different uh, thematic trends in the festival. Were you involved in the selection process of the festival? Uh, Yeah, I was able to watch uh, some of the Japanese indie works and sort of uh, give comments about them and uh, just to, uh yeah just uh yeah <laughs> that's always fascinating yeah i was uh
0: yeah i was remembering i mean I, not 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 uh the same thing but similar i was once involved in the editing panel of a of an amateur short fiction magazine uh and it's funny so of course you get you get more in fiction more so than in film because of You know, the the prophecies, but you get the, you know, the obvious bad ones, but you have to reject. But there's also the ones that are, you know, reasonable, good works, but maybe don't fit exactly what you're trying, what is the style or the thematic uh, subjects or or other um, or all the criteria you've kind of set out to do. And I imagine selecting films in a film festival kind of falls in the same uh
2: the same challenges are are involved in in the process yeah i like at the selection stage you get a huge huge variety of films like some films are meant to be seen and those ones you write are positively about and you try to give constructive feedback on um some of the uh films that don't quite work yes absolutely absolutely
0: uh all right so anything else uh, that you like to say about the festival before we actually go in and, and run through our individual top five films of the, Osaka, of the Osaka Asian Film Festival.
2: So yeah, the cinema portion ran from March 10th to March 20th. So today, as of the time of recording. Yeah, today was the final day. Uh, awards and uh, final film screening, Miss Osaka, which is... Uh, uh, we'll, the...
0: We will talk about the awards after our top five. We'll just mention who won what and, and whatnot.
2: Yeah so yeah is like a Norwegian Danish Japanese co-production the first ever co-production of such a, <laughs> a mixture of nationalities uh but uh this year we had an online portion uh this was the second year in a row where Osaka Asian Film Festival has been online and that ran from March 3rd to March 20th and it featured 10 films drawn from past editions of the festival so uh real mixture of indie works some from directors like debuts uh oe takamasa uh, the writer of drive my car so his work um nice to meet you played uh online and that was his uh, directorial debut but you also had uh like lots of great indie films that should be rediscovered it seemed like we had uh although we couldn't get um Filmmakers from abroad, you know, usually in uh, more normal times, you have filmmakers traveling from across Asia to visit Osaka and um, interact with the audience uh, due to COVID-19 sort of uh, meet and greets was toned down, uh, but directors from Japan were still able to attend. I see. Yeah, I know that a lot of some of the films had uh,
0: introduction videos that accompanied them on YouTube.
2: Yeah, this was, uh, I think this was the second year we started doing introduction films, uh, introductory videos for the films.
0: Unfortunately, no English subtitles, but still.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about the process on that. I think some filmmakers were able to put uh, subtitles. Interesting. Okay. On their films. But yeah, the Osaka Asian Film Festival is one of the best because it provides a lot of English language information and English subtitles for films. So. Like a lot of these Japanese indies might not be able to travel abroad if it wasn't for a festival like Osaka where people actually put in the effort of putting together English subtitles, high quality ones.
0: So uh, uh, just curious who, I don't know if you would know this, but who pays for the subtitle and does the festival actually do it or are the filmmakers responsible for providing the subtitles? Because there's a process uh, involved in that, of course.
2: Right. uh, I'm making a lot of assumptions now. I can't say for certain. Um but I think for the Japanese Indies the festival festival okay. mostly does it. That's interesting. That's very interesting. For some of the yeah. No, I can't say for certain, so best to cut that out.
0: Okay. Well it's fine. It's fine. I mean, would we'll just leave it as an open question. But it is it is interesting that at least the English subtitles are required, which is of course can make a difference.
2: Yeah, I know that the festival does provide English subtitling services, so I just I'm not sure because I've never asked how extensive it is
0: yeah well still I mean having English subtitles done for the purpose of the festival can facilitate it can facilitate a future release of the film, especially in today's uh with today's methods which releasing a film online is a relatively easy process at least as far as the technical aspects and the cost are of course licenses and and release rights and all that can get maybe have legal complications but but the process of having a film released online is very very easy, even for a small indie filmmaker. So, so I think the subtitles available is is a is a huge step towards making the film more available to the West.
2: Yeah, and also being part of a festival is like that uh, signal boost because there's so much content out there. Absolutely. Yes.
0: All right. So I think that was that was a nice overview of the festival as a whole and what it does and what it means. So why don't we jump to our favorite top five? films that we watch of course you watched a lot more than i did as a as a part of the of the staff of the festival but i think it's still narrowing down to top so basically what i'm saying is it, it was a lot harder for you than it was for me uh but uh <laughs> also easier in some ways because you had a, a bigger pool to choose from but uh okay so why, why don't we jump into that and go what was your number five film of the festival
2: uh, my number five film of the festival. Uh, I would say probably difficult one to choose, but I'm going to go with Bagmati River. Was that one of the shorts? One of the shorts, Japanese short. Okay, I I avoided the shorts because I
0: just wanted to, I wanted to watch as many of the features as possible.
1: Yeah,
2: well, um, Bagmati River, uh, shot in Nepal by a Japanese filmmaker named Yusaku Matsumoto, um. Previously, his uh, biggest film was Noise, which is a drama um, set around um, like, disaffected youth in um, Akihabara. And uh, Bagmati River uh, takes us from like, the urban jungle into the mountain ranges of uh, Nepal and uh, Mount Everest. And it's a story about a young woman searching for her brother who's gone missing. In the mountains and it seems like he's dead uh she's not sure um she hasn't seen him in like 10 years and um in order to to overcome a sense of mourning she travels to mount everest and climbs it in the hope of like finding some trace of him and um like it features impressive visuals captured by the director of photography um uh kishi oh kentaro kishi who's um an actor who appears in Noise, but he's also, uh, and also The Soa, which is like a really, really impressive uh, indie movie from Japan back 2018. So uh, anybody listening to this, um, if you haven't seen The Soa, make sure you see it now because it's one of the most moving movies about like oh, like regret and um chill, shame and guilt and overcoming that. Uh, do you remember what the runtime of the movie is? Uh, the Soa or Bagmati River? Bagmati River. Bagmati River. Okay, so the runtime is about twenty-nine minutes. Okay, seemed a, seemed like a lot of story for for a short film. That's why I asked. It's, it's a, it seems like a lot of story. There's uh, a amount a of exposition that's gone through, like some drive-by exposition. Exposition at the start with like newscasters announcing what's happened to the brother at the very start, and then it's the sister's experiences as she travels to Nepal. As um. She goes to like small mountain village and, um, tries to get, uh, to know the the locals. And then she travels into the mountains themselves. And it's a case of like the visuals and, um, the audio getting across like the sublime quality of this, um, environment, how overwhelming the mountains are. And this woman, um, played movingly by Junko Abe. Um, like she's, she's so small and tiny, like physically, um, as it's like she's folding in on herself. Um, and as she tries to connect with various people to find out where her brother is, and it, it gets across just how desperate she is to, like, find him. So yeah, like, uh, really impressed by, like, the visuals. Um, gets across, like, the vast scale of the mountains, but also, like, sound design as well, where you've got the constant sound of, like, whipping wind and also her heavy breathing as she's struggling up the mountains. And, um, yeah, this is partly based on um, Yusako Matsumoto's um, real-life experiences of being in the mountains. He also wanted, uh, like, a friend of his, uh, Nobukazu Kuriki, he was a mountain climber who, um, uh, unfortunately, he died during an attempt to climb Everest. And so this film ended up uh, moving from being a documentary into being a tribute by his friend. What does the titular Bagmati River refer to? So the Bagmati River has water which runs down from Everest, and it's like the like life is ever flowing, and like the brothers' connection with the place is like um, and it's like forever, and like you get the sense that she finds some catharsis at this. I at this idea that like he belongs to this place but at some point they'll meet up again in the river of life. Okay, I see. That makes sense. So it ends on a really nice calm and peaceful note as she's looking at the Bagmati River.
0: Okay. Anything else about this film? I haven't seen it so I can't really comment.
2: Uh well, cu- well it yeah, it it won an award for the central performance. We'll we'll,
0: we'll mention that after the top 5. Okay. So my number five was you know the the before mentioned Kazakhstani film Red Pomegranate and the, I mean this is this was a, a a film that I think it's it's I think it has a lot of flaws I didn't I think it there were a few things that kind of didn't didn't work as well but I think the overall story and the overall message I think kind of won me over uh, and just to give and I'm sure you've seen it right yeah yeah so it's about it's sort of a challenges certain tra- tra- traditions which i'm not sure are how prevalent they are in kazakhstan versus how prevalent they might be in this particular region of south kazakhstan where the movie takes place about sort of the concepts of shame and how people either younger people or women are not supposed to to speak out uh in fear of shaming the family or the community and most most important the place of men in society uh, and men that are considered respected in a particular community and what and what forth, I thought it was. I, I thought it was very moving because it sort of. Uh, I, I I grew up, like I mentioned. I grew up in in Eastern Europe in a place that is, you know, predominantly a patriarchal society. It's no one near as bad as the the patriarchy that is displayed is in uh in this uh movie. But there are hints of 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 what of the society that is portrayed in the film that kind of sounded very true to me. And that kind of spoke, spoke in a way that I think made this film stand out. Uh, And it otherwise wouldn't have, because I thought some parts of it were a little bit uh, ridiculous and a little bit questionable. Uh, And maybe you have, uh, uh, you have uh, an opinion about it, but uh, the space themes that are in the beginning and the ending of film of the film. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it starts with images of space and nebulas and a meteor falling into earth and it ends with the same thing but the actual story narrative almost
2: has nothing to has nothing to do with that so I don't know if you uh, what you made of that. I pro- I had similar misgivings. To, uh, the ending was um unsatisfying. It seemed like it had multiple endings, it didn't know how quite how to stick the landing. Yes, yes, I, I would agree with that. Yes. Everything in the middle was was great. Absolutely, yes.
0: Uh, um, yeah. Except except for a few moments, like um, again, of course, the, there will be spoilers in our discussions. But uh, the, the I, I try to avoid that. I, I try to avoid them in my overview. But I don't think it's possible uh, without actually discussing the film. Uh, but uh, but you know the this her stepson, the main character's Amar or um, what's the the boy's name? Adil, Adil, who is the step the stepson of the main character, Anar, uh, whose husband just is in a lot of debt and abandons her, and we never know where he goes or what he does. Uh, and it's essentially sort of like the the average, uh, you know, husband in a patriarchal society, but the, the son gets raped by an older boy whom we never see. Uh, and of course, her interaction with him or her lack of interaction sounded to me as a bit, uh, I want to say comical, because... Uh, <laughs> You know, there's that scene where they come back from the doctor and the son is, you know, is uh, doesn't want to walk home. So she just said, whatever, fine, just stay here. And she just abandons him in the middle of the street uh, and just continues to walk home. And then she hears she hears a bunch of people say, oh, help. This kid is drowning. Yeah. And then she runs and there's another kid that's drowning in a a, virtually a village of less than a thousand people, presumably. Uh, there just happens to be another kid that is drowning and then she just completely ignores that kid and she just walks towards the other kid that she, I don't know, it, 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 uh, that, that, uh, I wrote down in my notes because I, I made a note of that because it literally made me do a spit take (laughs) as I was, I was drinking some water and I spit it on my desk because that's, that's a, that was a, a, a funny,
2: an unintentionally funny moment. Yeah, it's it's a funny moment in a rather austere film, like and like the sense that the the oppressive sense that she's alone in this hostile society, where like the one powerful shop owner is able to pull strings and uh, try and get his uh, son's case dismissed. Yeah, there's a lot of tension in that, and then when the, the husband comes back and like he like he's acting really atrociously. But like you said, it plays into the sense that like in a patriarchal society, you cannot bring shame to the family.
0: Yeah. And it's it, it the 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 husband at one point says when they're at police station, she says, why can't I can't I drop the charges? I, I can make decisions for her. Uh, and that's that's ver- verbatim what the line of dialogue is. And that sounds, you know, to someone to someone in the West, that may sound an over the top. But I I, I know people who think like that because it's just so such a such a a matter of fact part of the culture of the of the you know of how people are used to living uh and of course of course the the husband is not exactly one-dimensional because after that he does feel guilty about his actions and what he has done, and you know in the end he ends up killing himself or at least presumably kills himself
2: yeah, he cannot stop lying so yeah the red the red pomegranate that he dismisses at the very start of the film you can't grow it like he pretends that he actually bought it for his wife yes Just yes a, a nice sort of character moment of like shameless lying.
0: yeah and um uh oh what was <sighs> there was one other thing that i would oh yeah and of course i think the film also recognizes that these sort of cultural patterns and mores are not easy to dismiss as much as we can condemn them as immoral or outdated because there was the final moment where even the shopkeeper gets a, uh, gets redeemed in a certain sense because his wife comes back and he sort of like vows to teach his son better. But he does ask the question, you know, what would you do if it was a reverse and it was your child that was guilty? And, you know, the the woman, the um, uh, Anar has no answer for that. And, uh, you know, we don't know what she would have done, but it is, you know, i think implied that the answer is not so easy as she wouldn't be on the moral high ground that it is now
2: yeah like there's uh it's really good how her backstory comes into this and then you have that sort of like um as you pointed out that question like it's like morally the answer is easy but even for her it's um it's hard to
0: yeah. And she does end up, she does end up sort of like sacrificing her. even, you know, regardless of the ambiguity, she does end up sacrificing her, her uh, morals for, you know, the payment in the end. And, um, you know, there's, there's a few things where I, I wasn't sure exactly where the film stands in terms of, okay, so there's this tension between the husband, there's this almost difference in philosophy between husband's who is mostly seeking economic, uh, the economic high ground, the economic wealth. And then the wife, who doesn't care so much about the economic health versus the moral moral high ground, the moral health. And she even says to him, It says, he says, Why am I condemned to live, uh, to be poor all my life? And she says, it's not, it's not money that you need, it's a wealth of morals or something like that. And that reminded me of Parasite. Mm. Uh, there's that scene where the wife in Parasite says, talks about how, how it's easy to be nice when you're rich. Mm. And and I think that's, I'm not sure exactly what time. I think the film was maybe taking the easy way out, was sort of giving, which I, I don't think it does because in the end, again, the 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 wife does end up selling out. But for for a while, it seems like the wife is taking the easy out. Despite being poor, despite being you know uh, desolate and abandoned, she still can take can do the moral thing, which is again I'm not I'm not sure how a realistic approach is that because again, like the line in Parasite, it's easy to be nice when you're comfortable. But if you're poor, sometimes you have no choice but to act immorally uh, because it is the, you know, just what you're forced to do. And a lot of these problems, a lot of these moral problems, a lot of of the problems of patriarchy maybe can be traced down to
2: economic disparities. But she comes from a background of wealth because her father's a mine owner. So it's so easy for her to be able to talk like that. Uh, But at the end, they're all compromised in some way. And there's a meteor falling down on earth for some reason. Uh, Yeah, uh, and it was interesting seeing, like, uh, sort of Soviet influence on the village as well. Absolutely. I think, I don't know what language, I I, I don't, do you happen to look up
0: what language it is that they're talking? I don't think it was Russian.
2: No. uh, Must have been kazakh Kazakh. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, you've got these, uh, again, with, like, the costumes and, like, the uniforms, um, very Soviet in style, but also attitude to authority as well. So yeah, even though it's a patriarchal society, there are rules they have to go by. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: that's uh, you know, the, that's funny I wrote down that the the laws are not in line with the customs of the people where, you know, like again the same scene where the husband just assumes with it doesn't even occur to him that he will not be able to kind of undo his wife's action even though he has no legal standing to do so. And even the policeman, the police officer, that seems like ah, I know, but you know what? What can you do? That's the law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it seems like it's either a law that's left by you know the Soviet era where they did try for for all their faults that did try to sort of like make away with these custom like inequalities between men and men and women at least on paper, even though in practice they were less than successful. Um, uh, and maybe that is those are laws that have remained. Uh, since the Soviet era, but have not have are not reflected by the actual customs that people live by.
2: But there's also a sense that um, she's well from a more cosmopolitan background, which is why she's able to get the news crew in.
0: Yes, and, and like, that's why I initially said that we don't know if this is. A, I know, I do know. I remember reading a while ago that child abuse is a problem in Kazakhstan. You know, as as a is a national problem. So I don't know how much these kind of issues are countrywide? Or are they just, you know, like a, a rural versus urban problem? Or are they sort of a specific region where the culture is, is uh, different than, say, the the rest of the country? Or I, I don't know. I don't know exactly. Don't, I don't have the the required knowledge to make an assessment of what exactly the film is talking about. And of course, I did. I The director has an interview, but it's not translated. So I couldn't see her statement about it.
1: Hmm.
2: So, what is your number four, Jason? So, my number four is um, North Shinjuku 2055. Okay, by, that's another one I, I did not see. By Daisuke Miyazaki. It's a short, and it's 35 minutes. So, um, Daisuke Miyazaki is a filmmaker. I um, often, sort of, uh, when I'm at the festival, I've um, interviewed him uh, a few times, and I've reviewed a number of his films. And uh, this is one of the um, directors that the festival... Um, Continuously screams, and I like his approach to um, filmmaking, which is to try something different every time. It's like he's got a particular knack for tapping into sort of concerns of uh, young people and using youth culture in his works. So he frequently melds like um smartphone wielding teenagers and hip-hop and uh, all sorts of um with uh, with a coming of age uh, story or maybe uh, with a with a travelogue and um the travelogue can go into a completely different realm as you get a, a all-seeing omniscient narrator who's like uh speaking from the future who's like yeah this adventure will continue North Shinjuku 2055 is completely different from anything I've seen of his so far because it's a film that's mostly told through still black and white photographs and it imagines the uh, sort of titular Tokyo neighborhood as being a closed off community. And um, this journalist is looking for information about the area and he interviews uh, a guy who claims to know about the history and um, is going to tell him everything about it. and. What happens uh, during the interview is like uh, it turns into a bit of a duel because the journalist has negative preconceptions about the place, um, specifically like crime, violence, and foreigners. And uh, there's a nice twist at the end of the film. I've seen it compared to, um, or someone's mentioned uh, that it's uh, similar to Chris Marker's La Jetée, which is a film I haven't seen. Have you seen it? La Jetée, I have seen it, yeah yeah so uh, yeah could you um talk about that film a little
0: well it's a science fiction film about a future in a future where the i forget if it's nuclear uh, or virus or if it's a nuclear holocaust uh, but they decide they have this device to send someone back in time and they send them to to stop it or or do something i forget exactly the details but he uh, he goes back to falls in love with a woman, so he becomes fixated uh, on that instead of doing his job, and eventually sort of uh, witnesses his own death. Uh, he's he's he he enters into a, a scenario uh, where he he's he dies. So the adult, the person who goes back in time, dies, and um, and uh, but dies in front of his child is his, uh, the, the, his younger self, and that's a memory that he's had the whole time.
2: Oh, this sounds like a certain Terry Gilliam film.
0: It is, but well, that's a remake of La Jetée. Okay, so so Twelve Monkeys is a remake of La Jetée, and um, actually, yeah. So I'm, uh, yes, but the 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 difference is, of course, Terry Gilliam's film is uh, entirely is a a regular film. Whereas La Jetée is, to- is told almost entirely through still pictures. Okay. So it's a film basically like a slideshow with an air a narration, but it is a very compelling one. It's a very well done with black and white photos, very moody, very evocative. And there's only one brief shot of a movement, and that's when he finally meets sort of the woman that he becomes obsessed with. Okay. But otherwise, it's entirely still pictures. But they're- it's very good, and it's a short, it's a 20, 30-minute film, so I... You know, if you can find it on YouTube or something, watch it because it's a it's a nice film.
2: Well, this one also has evocative black and white photographs, and uh, it there are some uh, full motion uh, moments um, to just to punctuate certain sections, especially at the end where the street informer kind of brings a close to everything. But, but yeah, the two actors who like you're listening to them deliver a lot of um, exposition, and this their their voices and. The way the captures in the pictures is perfect, but Miyazaki also goes out into the community itself he like i I'm guessing he's taken photographs himself of like uh urban locations uh and the people in these locations and he selected like actors who've just got these really interesting faces like like with spaghetti westerns uh you would get like people with like gnarls or <laughs> twisted Yeah, yeah features. I,
0: that's that that was um uh what's his name? Uh, the director. Sergio Leone? So Leone loved showing close-ups of people with interesting faces.
2: Yeah, like, Miyazaki does something similar, so, like, he really builds up the atmosphere with this film, so it's, like, completely, I like, I went into this blind, and, um, I was really impressed because it took me, like, this is a science fiction, a science fiction film that's, like, because I hadn't seen La Jette, it was something totally new to me the visuals like the still images go by at quite a good pace and there's lots of variety to them. And, uh, then it links into like historical photographs as you go back into like samurai period, Mm. And, um, and there's like nice linkage that way. And also there's uh, the soundtrack is brilliant. It's like urban street noises, um, trains rattling by sirens going, um, and, uh, eventually it culminates in the in a surprise ending and then like a banger of a final track. Yeah, so definitely check it out if you can uh, see see it. Okay. Uh, so my
0: number 4 was the Hong Kong film The First Girl I, The First Girl I Loved uh, directed by Canding Go and um Chu Hoi, I believe. I hope I pronounced those right. And it's a Hong Kong film about the arguably failed relationship of two women who were friends in high school, and through various circumstances, separated through life. They are um, uh, they are reunited again, and their relationship goes through several ups and downs. Uh, and in the end, they sort of amicably uh, amicably reach a state of status quo that I can't really decide if it's a happy ending or a tragic ending, uh, maybe a little bit of both. And, uh, and, um, I think this could have been my favorite film of the festival, except for the ending, which I don't know how to, what to make of it. It's a sort of a reconciliation between the two lovers, one who has sort of like remained, uh, a lesbian throughout her life and one who sort of treats it like a phase i guess and in the end they sort of they decide to remain friends and i think it i don't i don't know what you what you make so let me let me um i guess i didn't give a plot somewhere but it's about it's about these two friends wing lee and sylvia lee who somehow have the same last name although i guess that's 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 common in china they uh, take, take and th- they grow up together in the class, and sort of without realizing, they sort of develop a more a, a relation that I'd be stronger, their friendship. Until they get caught, and circumstances force them to separate, they uh, they reunite later in life at a when something tragic happens to one of them. But one when, when one of them tries to sort of restart their relationship. Uh, the other one stops it saying that it's not time yet. We will have time to do this later. But then when they finally meet later, later, the one that did not want the relationship is married to a man who whom we see nothing about. And it seems like a very cardboard marriage, to be honest. And I can't, like I said, I can't decide if that final marriage scene where the two friends uh, uh, visible, similarly sort of appear to sort of have reconciled and make up and sort of have have accepted that their relationship is just friendship and nothing more is a happy
2: scene or a tragic scene hmm yeah it's uh fright uh at the in the first half of the film Nami's unsure about her feelings uh for her friend, and um it's kind of like then there's uh who's sort of draws out sort of her sexuality yeah and then it's-, it's kind of like a tragedy at the end, where like a heteronormative um, situation reestablishes itself, but it's filmed in such a way um, that it's more wistful than anything else. It's filmed like it's 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 the entire film is almost like it's done through an Instagram filter. Like I, that was infuriating in the beginning, but you kind of get used to it. <laughs> oh, no, it, it was appropriate for like teenage, you, you know, what you imagine teenage girls.
0: I I don't think they could have they they had to do it throughout the entire sequence. I think it's the entire first half that looks like that. I think they ease it down later as they grow old. But it's I don't know. It's still <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm still not sure how I
2: feel about it. I felt like it matched the sort of um, subject matter, especially with with, with regards to like um, how teenage girls view the world or teenagers in general view the world. And it does take a sort of harder edge when they get to university. But that um that's uh. That has less time uh, devoted to it to explore how, like, uh, they come to like final concrete decision about how they'll handle their sexuality.
0: Yeah, and I think I think the relationship between the two is just kind of a—it's how it evolves from you know it's it's Sylvia who makes the first move and Wing is just too reticent to accept it, and it seems yeah, the film is almost uncertain whether it wants how much it wants to link to lean in into the these uh these uh women's sexual uh, like sexuality and and in the end it's almost still remains undecided like we don't get the impression that wing has had relationship with other women we see her have a relationship with other with another uh with one of her university friends just just out of spite not necessarily that she has feeling for him but it's kind of it that felt more like curiosity I, that's true i i agree yes. But we don't, yeah. I didn't get the sense that she is really into that that guy. It was either curiosity or out of spite because she had just met Sylvia and had to, who had told her that she had a boyfriend and he was serious. But but after that, you know, it's clearly that she's not really into him. But then we never see her, you know, pursue another, you know, female relationship, another you know lesbian relationship.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's like um, she's held a candle for a friend and uh, for so long, and then she has that really. And the way it's filmed is such a horrible experience, and that she continues to persist, uh, holding the uh, like her, her friend in such, you know, holding a candle for her friend, and it doesn't uh, come true. Yes, and that reminded me. So I wrote down that
0: this the film is like a mix of Kar Y and the show from the CW because <laughs> it's kind of reminded me. But it also gave me a lot of Whispering Corridor Two vibes.
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Yeah, in a sense, not not the horror stuff, but you know how their relationship
2: is sort of like depicted between the two the two girls. Yeah, lots of video cameras and uh, sneaking kisses and holding hands uh, at a Catholic all girls school. Absolutely, and you know how you know how they separate is heartbreaking when they're caught,
0: and you know they're they're forced to one, uh, one of the women, uh, one of the Sylvia, uh, is her father tells her that I don't care what you do. But you really can't lose the scholarship because we are essentially
2: broke. Yeah, that, I thought that was a refreshing aspect of the film, which is like fathers were pretty laid back about it. They were accepting, but that class element does pull them apart. I, that's, that's another thing that I thought was
0: fascinating because they weren't accepting it. They were you know, dismissing it. Saying you know it's not gonna last. Like they didn't they didn't take it seriously, but they didn't also act negatively towards it. So it's it's more
2: apathy, their antipathy, but it wasn't sympathy either. Do you think it's looking at it through the lens of um, this is uh, their teenagers and this is a, an experimental phase, and then they'll get back to normal?
0: Yeah, and also it's it's something in the sense of you know in reference to our previous film about the shame. You know, the worst for a father, the worst. The most shame that a daughter can bring is get pregnant at high school and you know that's not going to happen if they you know only befriend uh if you know only they do stuff with women to just uh, to put it crudely
2: yeah the, the fathers do make the comment uh, at least it's not boys exactly so so i think there's there's like i said i think it's more of an apathy than
0: a sympathy for what they might be going to although sylvia's father later in that private conversation seems to be a little bit more sympathetic about he doesn't really care if her if it is indeed even a long term theme, but it does say that you can't lose your scholarship, and then Sylvia wants to break off to break off her uh her relationship just for the sake of her father's you know economic situation mm. wing insists and sort of pursues her makes her change her mind. But then when they're caught, that, that's the thing that kind of threw me off a little bit. When they're caught for a second time, now it's Wing who betrays and reads the apology letter, whatever that letter is, and then Sylvia is the one who tears the letter down, and obviously it's kind of implied that she's either expelled or quit school from that way, from that, uh, from that moment.
2: Mm, public denunciation.
0: So that's, there's like several flips that happen in a very short amount of time. And then we have, you know, when they meet later, well, the, the second time that they meet later, it's that tragedy where Sylvia's father has died, right?
2: Mm, yeah. And uh, she has siblings to look after.
0: Yeah. And you, you can clearly see that, you know, Wing is still holding the candor for her. But then this is another one where I think the filmmaker's tone is sort of, and I think this is intentional, so this is not a criticism, but the filmmaker tone sort of almost stands in contrast with what is going on, because I think one way to see that is Wing being there for her friend, and then another way to see it is as Wing taking advantage of a friend who is in a very, very delicate, emotional state.
2: Yeah, she's vulnerable.
0: Vulnerable, especially that scene where she literally barges into the shower and says, let's get back together. Like, what? What? You can't do that in you know when when uh, when the the other person is such in especially since you know it's also implied that Sylvia is in a not only in a vulnerable state emotionally but also financially she has to quit school and go to work right she what is she going to say don't help me
2: even though that's what she actually ends up saying yeah and then the one takes on the sort of her role and becomes a film student yeah and I I don't know so again that
0: even Sylvia when says let's you know. They're kissing and you can see that wing is it's a
2: mostly I don't know if this was obvious or not, but it was it seemed like a one sided kiss to me. Do you think it's kind of like um, the filmmakers were soft pedaling as much as possible to make it more accessible? I don't I think no, I think it was part of the characters. I think the filmmakers
0: did not did not want to either either because Sylvia herself didn't know or because the filmmakers didn't want to make a decision about what Sylvia really was. You know, I know, I know that, you know, not all people fit into labels, but some do and some don't who, you know, some people are very, know very well that they are, you know, they have a preference and some people are not so sure. Some people are more fluid. And, and I think that was the case with Silva. She didn't know exactly, but she also had this sort of hesitance about really being, being who wing thought she wanted to be and who wing wanted her to be.
2: Yeah. There's, uh, yeah, it is it is absolutely possible that she's bisexual and at the end it just it does seem like that
0: yeah and it's also possible that she was it was just a phase for her yeah and I think that's kind of what bothered me and I think I don't know it's it's not necessarily a bad thing I think it's a very valid way to approach the film but I, I kind of it kind of bothered me a little bit that the filmmakers didn't take a more more I think less implied and a more concrete stance about what Sylvia's sort of like really true feelings was but I think that's also part of the film that Wing will never know Yeah. Because at the very end, we have that. So she kind of breaks down. She says, did you just get married right before you turn 30 so you wouldn't have to hold your end of the deal? And that bothered me the most because Sylvia doesn't give her an answer and just wing just drops it. She just doesn't. She just goes on about it. She compromises in a way that I just don't think she should have. But it fits into that impossible
2: romance that will always linger. For that character,
0: yeah, that's that's why I said this remind me of the Wonka. Why? Because that's what he does—sort of impossible romances. Yeah, but yeah, so I don't know. I, I think I think the, the film, perhaps the film's ending is valid for from an objective point of view, but it bothered the hell out of me because I just did did not like the compromise with which it ended. Uh, but it does it does fit kind of this this dissatisfaction. Okay.
2: All right. So what um, what's your number three? So my number three is days before the millennium a taiwanese film okay another one i did not see so please talk about that so it's like two hours and 28 minutes long and yeah you know, uh i went into it blind and i had no idea what i was going to get myself into and it turns out to be a really gripping drama about um Vietnamese, uh, immigrants in Taiwan, specifically, uh, women who've married, uh, men and, uh, have gone over to live in Taiwan, Vietnamese women, uh, made that choice to travel to a foreign land looking for a better life and finding out that, uh, so, uh like, uh, the men that they've married aren't as rich as they had hoped. And, um, it's told over like, uh, the decades from 1996 all the way through, uh, past the millennium. And, um, it's told in such a way that it's dreamlike because you've got, um, lots of like fades, fading in and out while you've got like this, uh, music, this droning music, like chanting that goes on and it's got a slow atmosphere, but it it actually like absorbs you into what's going on and it wraps a lot of themes into it from immigration and different ethnicities um coming together to the plight of women um in uh relationships that can be abusive and um like i find the visuals were really arresting specifically like uh the way scenes were shot and the way they were lit so like um they're like, uh, tableaus or like, uh, with Vermeer lighting to, to, um, uh, light up. and, um, the way the actors are framed, just fascinating and you would have something in the foreground or maybe some camera movements, uh, just, uh, make it even more interesting. And, uh, I, at the end of like, uh, a film, I was really impressed by what I'd seen. Okay. I used the word slow earlier, but, um, it's got a gentle pace and, um, I never felt bored because there was like visually interesting and um what the characters were going through was really dramatic so as well like it's from nineteen ninety six to 2016 and you show you see the development of like uh this marriage alongside um historic events that are happening in taiwan like first direct elections and um sort of antagonistic um chinese communist party and uh threats of um uh attacks during this period and then you've got like typhoons and earthquakes and the tech bubble bursting and for it all you've got this really um you've got this really sympathetic woman uh uh, van tui um who's like trying to navigate being in a foreign land and integrating with it um while also like um surviving an abusive relationship and then in the second half it totally flips as you get an, another uh, Vietnamese woman, Nam, who's a private detective, and uh, she goes investigating Van Thuy, and, like, characters start playing other roles, uh, like, characters you've seen before start playing other roles, and, um, so yeah, like, as well as dealing with real world issues, it feels like, um, it's got, uh, a dreamlike quality to it, so it comes like a fable of, like, people living in a foreign land, and outsiders, um, uh, uh, dealing with locals and like trying to get past, um, their opposition to each other. Yeah, I noticed there were a few films,
0: uh, in this festival, uh, that dealt, you know, one way or another with you know immigration, foreigners, you know, sort of isolation and and, and all various themes that are sort of associated to that to that experience.
2: Yeah, so one of the trends, um, like another movie on my list, uh, deals with that, and in a similar adroit uh, uh some the manner in which is able to wrap all of these complex real world themes into like an engaging story
0: okay and you mentioned you mentioned sort of like the chinese influence and i one thing that i forgot i'll backtrack a little bit about the first girl i love is uh i loved is uh it's a hong kong film like i mentioned uh shot in cantonese which is a rarity uh nowadays uh and uh the it's it's unclear when the present past takes, but the, the their high school was approximately, you know, 2002, 2003 years, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a, I wrote down, there's a throwaway line there uh, from one of the teachers to the, to the students saying, enjoy, enjoy this time because you're lucky to be living in an era of freedom and I, I of course that could just mean there's just be a, like a throwaway comment about youth but i thought it was um uh, it was written in the 2000 in the early it was you know taking place in the early 2000 you know only shortly after uh shortly after the the hong kong handover before uh, as uh, we know china started taking away slowly a bit by bit the sort of like the the implied freedoms of
2: people from hong kong I'm sure there's a reference to Leslie Chung and he died in the early two thousands. Commit- yes, yeah. there's that too. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, there was that in the background.
0: Uh but anyway, so not to take away from uh uh from the days before the million.
2: So anything else that you'd like to add before uh before uh we move on to the next one? It's a film I've watched like uh three times now. And um yeah, I just admire that like like this the central story is like this woman's search for a place, like her identity in a foreign land. But it inter- intertwines Taiwanese, Chinese, and Vietnamese history into it through lots of, um, so sort of like drive-by exposition, like radio announcements, and, uh, but also some big scenes, like an earthquake that happens in a, a women's hostel, which is re- which was really impressively done, and um, this. Because it has this dreamlike atmosphere, and you, uh, there are characters switching roles, and you've also got like these surveyors going around, um, acting a bit like a Greek chorus. It, um, and uh, yeah. I don't know what they're surveying, but it, it has like this sort of um, uh sci-fi atmosphere to it as well. Or oh, uh, otherworldly. Yeah, otherworldly is probably like a really good way of phrasing it. Yeah, just uh, yeah, I was really impressed with it, and uh, like, I think it would be a crime if it doesn't get screened in other festivals. Yeah, hopefully,
0: hopefully you know there'll be some way for people you know in the West to access it you know after either in not, either in subsequent festivals. Who know? Maybe it's Japan Japan Cuts next year or something like that.
2: Yeah, it has so many themes like immigration and um, uh, prejudice against um, xenophobia and uh, sort of misogyny and uh, yeah, there's, there's so much to explore in this film. Yeah, and I think there is. Oh, oh no, never mind. This is
0: not Japanese. I don't know why I said Japan Cuts. Uh, it's Taiwanese. NYAFF, so the new york asian film festival i think you did mention there is a history of sort of the osaka films making it those north american film festivals that perhaps you know are more accessible to us in the west
2: yeah so yeah i think that new york asian film festival would be the perfect place to yeah. screen it and they have done in the past i mean i think
0: you you did mention it when uh when we covered it that some of the films you had already seen in uh in uh, from the Osaka festival yeah if I, if I remember correctly
2: Joint and free sisters were uh, are the two that come to mind absolutely
0: okay uh, my number three is uh, barbarian invasion which I believe was a Indonesian or Malaysian film as a uh, Malaysian Malaysian film from with a Malaysian star but with a Hong Kong pro- 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 co-production apparently and it's about an actress who, who was also a single mo- mother who had retired from acting to sort of to pursue, to focus on her family. But after being recently gone through a very highly publicized divorce, uh, she decides to go back to acting. And the director, her director friend, suggests uh, that she go through, she comes back with a, uh, a, a, a what, what's the movie that they're trying to imitate? It's like a Jason uh, Bourne movie. Jason Bourne, yeah. So like the Malaysian Jason Bourne. Uh, but she's the star and the, the director thinks that it's very important she'd do, do, do her own stunts. So she goes to the train, she goes through all the training and then sort of like becomes very impressively learns how to fight, uh, at least good enough for the movie. But then sort of the film in an almost supernatural way slowly transitions from her, the actress's life into what the actual movie is 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 the one that she will um, uh, that she's preparing for, and then it becomes sort of more and more surreal as the film progresses uh and ends in a what I can describe almost a dream like sort of a fever dream uh of uh, of images that kind of don't give a proper resolution except for maybe a thematic one uh, but i think it does kind of it does make sense in a way because there is this uh uh what is uh what is the story that the director says at the very beginning of the film about uh Miyamoto Musashi right mm, i haven't seen no. it to be honest oh you you haven't seen barbarian uh, invasion no oh so this this is the one right Hmm. oh uh, okay uh yeah so there's there's it makes a um, Who's what's the name of the famous Japanese swordman? Is it Musashi Miyamoto? Yeah, yeah. So he made he made a comment about the director tells a story about Musashi Miyamoto being challenged by a younger swordsmen, and the swordsman invites him for uh, tells him to show up for a duel at midday, but uh, Musashi Miyamoto shows up in the evening, and the son the the swordman is uh, angry with him but he uh, he agrees to fight him anyway. But now Musashi Yamato is uh, fighting with the sun behind him. And because the sun blinds the younger swordsman, Miyamoto is able to kill the swordsman. And when people accuse him that that was not fair, Miyamoto reply, Miyamoto's reply is that for that man, the, swords, the sword was his world. But for me, the world was my sword. And uh, the director makes the comment, the same thing. The film is not, uh, my world the world is my film and it's i think fitting that the the film transitions from the real world seamlessly into the world of the film that the actress is supposed to take place and it ends in a very very surreal scene where even the film doesn't 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 get any closure it just kind of like wanders off into a bunch of surreal images and there's even a scene of a guy walking on water of the director walking on water and that's how the film quite literally ends Mm. Uh, so that's why i wanted i was very curious to get the director's opinion of what exactly what exactly was the sort of the motivation behind because the the director is also the star of the film Mm. and she's a real sort of star in uh uh in in uh, malaysia and just like her character in the film the actors also took a break for several years before returning to this film so there's i suspect there's quite a few autobiographical uh autobiographical elements to the to the film Mm. But it's very surreal. The fighting is very well, so that's another aspect. I mean, I don't know that I would call it as an action film, but there is quite a little bit of fighting, especially towards the latter half, uh, where we're into the world of the movie that she's supposedly filming, Uh, and the action is quite good. And she's, you know, the trainings montages are, you know, uh, somewhat cliche, but also very well done. Uh, And she's, uh, you know, she's uh, she goes through, you know, so like the typical Hong Kong movie uh uh fighting scenario where she learns to fight in the in the same way that key the, the the bride from kill bill does okay uh yeah but it's i i thought it was a very good film there's there's uh there's some references to philip k dick and there's uh uh especially for like like books like Ubik and Androids stream of electric Sheep and i think that has to do with sort of like the surreal world within world element that the film has uh because there's uh you know one the there's a one sort of computer hacker who's again the most stereotypical computer hacker that we <laughs> that we often see in these kind of movies uh but he's like sort of his bookshelf full of this kind of books that's definitely sort of a nod to the structure of the film itself where it's like a story within a story and we don't really know what's real and what's not mm. But it's an interesting film. I didn't know quite what to make of it. I think uh, I think it's sort of a. I think it it definitely requires revisiting. But it I think it intrigued me enough that I placed it as a number three in my list.
2: Okay. Okay. So what is your number two, Jason? My number two is uh, the girl on a bulldozer. Okay. Uh, South Korean. That movie. is uh. That is my number one. <laughs> okay. So um i guess we can talk about it now yes absolutely so yeah it's like i've seen it uh build this uh i think the director b- himself has built it as a revenge drama as a 19 year old girl has to sort of clean up the mess her father which makes, is not which is not what the movie is no it's not it's like yeah her father like you get the sense that this girl has had to take care of the family because the father is a, a gambling addict and a drove her mother to an early grave and, um, he's, uh, bad money. And it seems like he's in debt to, uh, to a politician. And then mysterious stuff happens and he's involved in a car accident and this 19 year old girl has to take on all the debts and there's a mystery surrounding the car accident. And, um, you know, it seems like, uh, it might be a revenge thriller, but it turns into a mystery, but then it turns into a character study of this, uh, uh with like heavy socioeconomic and sort of political themes yes. to
0: it. what i just uh to, to interject there a little bit and what i wrote down is she is a character from a revenge thriller but thrown into a more grounded realistic genre
2: well, it reminds me of something like um green room or blue ruin where you've got real life people involved in like these uh movie like situations and it's kind of like initially she had like she's angry and um like her attitude gets her so far and then she hits a brick wall and it's kind of like you're rooting for her but then you see how her attitude towards life it, uh creates shortcomings like she, like she can't handle the investigation properly and it's very risky done yeah and it's it's exactly you know the the brick
0: wall it's you know when uh what's that uh, old proverb about the the saying about any movable object hitting a a, a an unmovable what's i what's the phrase like i i forget oh i'm not sure oh the an immovable object hitting a an impossible i don't know anyway there's something there's something there's a saying like that that i think fits very well because she is a sort of a, a tour de force character that
2: does hit a brick wall yeah and like uh, it's an immovable object meets an unstoppable force
0: yes okay yes that's that's kind of i think the metaphor that goes with her as a character and the situation that she's presented with
2: yeah and she's very movie like at the beginning Is she's like uh i love the scene where like the cop's like oh you're here in the police station again and she just gets a phone book and she bats him across the head yeah or the the the, the
0: way the film opens is just absolutely brilliant she is in she starts she's in a courtroom and she's getting she's get she's getting a talking to from the judge she's sentenced to you know x amount of community service i forget and then straight out of the courtroom she goes and kicks kicks uh beats up the the girls who ratted out presumably
2: yeah but there's a key element in that courtroom scene which is like because she was defending uh the shop uh worker from those three girls she's able to get out yeah absolutely yeah not well with with community service we have community service but that, you know she's got this uh fantastic like lead actress kim uh terrible pronunciation apologies kim Hwi-Yoon. like fantastic performance so she swaggers around uh swearing she's got this tattoo and like she's very movie like but then like in the latter half of the film where she can't go any further and like the frustration and the, the uh, like the one person she can talk to uh, her younger brother like the frustration and the desperation and like and she doesn't know what to do like that moment like really humanized her As yes it's
0: she's hit a brick wall like I think that that is a perfect uh, phrase and I think so I wrote, I, you wrote a review about this in your website and I wrote a review it's not up on V Cinema yet but it you know eventually it will be and I, I think my comment was that as brilliant as the writing is I don't think the film works without her I think she makes the film she makes it what it is
2: yeah, it's like the the story isn't so much about her revenge. It's like it's like her coming to terms with like her father's legacy, and that's dovetailed neatly into um like the revenge aspects of the film. Absolutely, yes.
0: And in revenge, the revenge, I think the key is that the revenge she attempts revenge like she would in a thriller story, and you know, in a sort of in a Kill Bill style thriller story. But you know, she. She's met with the problems that would happen, like in the real world. She just can't, you know. She can't go. Around. So I was a bit, uh, just a funny anecdote. I did not know what a bulldozer was. Okay. So I thought, in my mind, I a bulldozer was a road roller, like a flat, the flattening thing, the mm. one with a big wheel.
2: Yeah, steamroller. Oh.
0: Yeah. Well, not necessarily steamroller, but just a roller, right? Yeah. 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 The one that flattens the road. That's what I thought a bulldozer was. So I was like the entire movie I was waiting. When is the bulldozer coming in? And then I When kinda, is she
2: gonna flatten the bad guys?
0: Exactly. That's what I thought. I thought she would grab that and just kind of start chasing people. Because that that is bad. Like you don't want to get flattened by one of those. <laughs> but it's not obviously it's not that kind of film. Uh, no. but then I looked it up and said, Oh, okay, never mind. That's that's not what a bulldozer really is. I had the I had the wrong picture. I had the wrong idea. Hmm. Yeah, but this is this is more in line with, uh, with I think the sort of like the recent trend of of socio socially aware Korean movies that sort of Parasite popularized, but have been coming out you know for the last maybe three to four years in Korea. Very not necessarily just indie, even big name uh or at least moderate named directors have been releasing about you know social injust- injustice or economical injustice about sort of like the modern day korea uh and i think this is more than a revenge thriller more than a mystery thriller or anything like that i think this movie kind of fits into that category yeah okay okay so say yeah, i think it's it's great and you know obviously i think the the character is the girl with a dragon tattoo mm. because she literally has a dragon tattoo and she literally beats people up uh so it's it's <laughs> there's that had to be an
2: inspiration well, whatever, uh, whatever the inspiration was, like she's one of the most exciting, so, but also, uh, complex, uh, female characters to have lit up cinema screen in recent years. I loved her character development. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and I think the ending
0: is, I think it's so. I mean, it's it's so fascinating because of how well and complex it is because it's both. A resignation it's both an, a resignation that she cannot change the system yeah but i think it's also growth it's growth in the sense that you cannot win by being angry all the time yeah you can't win by bulldozing your 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 problems you have to think them about differently and i think that's the what she does where she goes and confronts not 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 with violent or angry intentions but with you know uh, intentions of closure intentions of sort of like resolution when confronts the guy that uh, was apparently involved in the accident yeah and, you know and she's sort of like seeks the truth but without confrontation because she's i think she in that final scene she's ready to do what she wasn't willing for the entire film is to walk away you know and then she starts to do it when the guy is not is refused to give her answers but then she she's rewarded uh, she's rewarded by by him sort of stopping her and finally telling her the truth and i think that's sort of like a array of hope that the filmmakers are giving us that yes there is hope for change but we cannot achieve it by being at least that's my interpretation of their message that we cannot achieve it by being angry and violent all the time or or in in whatever way that can be uh seen as yeah i agree okay so any anything else about obviously my number one your number two we both agree that this was a fantastic film in a, in, in a lineup of 70 or so films in the entire festival. And I think, I suspect this will, we'll see this again. This will not be the last time that we've seen this in, in either uh, some kind of release in the West or in the festival circuit.
2: No, I, uh, again, like the other films I mentioned, I hope people do get a chance to see this. It's uh, yet another great Korean film full of complexity that defies expectations. Okay. So my number two is Angry Son. <laughs> That's my number
0: one. <laughs> Okay. Okay. And this, uh, so, okay. So that's, that was a, a nice, uh, use of symmetry. Uh, but, uh, this is about a Japanese Filipino, um, high school, high school student who's sort of like struggling with both his sort of status as a young gay man, uh, and also as a young, Man of mixed race in sort of modern japan and it's fascinating they use the term japino which i had never heard before Mm. which is uh, you might you might explain this better than i do but it's sort of a a derogatory i don't know if it's a derogatory term or sort of a descriptive term for for japanese and filipino
2: yeah uh, it's like a portmanteau yes japanese and filipino but like in japan like there's a habit of shortening words it's just that japino is really uh derogatory (laughs) I see, see. Yes. And sort of he's,
0: you know, he's going through several, sort of both, sort of a a, a financial, a little he and his mother, uh, because he does not know who his father is, because his mother was a, well, not, not a prostitute, but she was a girl that worked in a, what are those type S- of bars? Filipino pubs. Filipino pubs, where you sort of like, where you sit and you have female company with you. Yeah, like a hostess. A hostess, exactly. And, and sort of you... And she was at the time she was involved with someone who for for the just the purpose of obtaining a a, a work visa. It's like a paper marriage. Uh, Exactly. But she was also uh, but but that was sort of a yeah, exactly paper marriage. But she was also involved with someone who was is actually the father of her child. But they don't know who it is, Mm. even though even though she's getting alimony or at least the son is getting alimony so there's so there's that crisis the crisis of identity but there's also a financial crisis because of because of uh, certain circumstances i think covid maybe
2: yeah uh covid is shutting down filipino pubs yes and her her mom is not uh is not um, eligible for um like social
0: security Or exactly yeah. exactly Uh, But also, uh, you know, and she's, of course, because of also a lot of prejudice, she has a hard time maintaining a a, a different like other jobs. And she's, of course, there's also the pressure for her to send money home to her family who uh, needs it because apparently the economy in the Philippines is not as good. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, and of course, like there's a a third element, which is the tension between um, what's uh, what's the boy's name, Jungo? Jungo, Yeah jungo and his mother because he's sort of like there's this sort of implicit blame that he attributes to her for his not fitting in society he's almost angry that he's alive that he was brought into sort of this hostile world where he is not only gay but also of mixed race and he just can't really fit with anyone
2: yeah it's one of those things where like hateful views have been inculcated into him and he's just adopted them because he's he and he. He targets his mother.
0: Yeah, there was uh, there was a uh, things that how he has a boyfriend, and of course everybody knows they're not like keeping it a secret or anything like that. But uh, how how sort of a, I, I was uh, I was a bit surprised how accepting his boyfriend's family is of him because they look like the most if you look at them as in the household the way they sit around here they look like the most conservative Japanese family uh that you can see on TV or on, on film.
2: Well, there is that moment where they sat around the dinner table, and like the, the the mother and the daughters are like, "Oh, you're going to get married," and the father interrupts and it's like, uh, "How yeah. are you going to live in the real world?" But it's not negative. He's just trying to work things out. Exactly, and even in the, in the end, when the film ends, again, if things um, things are
0: resolved uh, by by the end, but um, uh, but he he is, you know, how are you going to live? He said, "You're not going to go to school," but. Yeah, what's what's his boyfriend's name? I can't remember. Some some Japanese name, uh, because uh, his boyfriend is Japanese, uh, and he says, "Well, he's going to go to school, so you're going to have to support, but you're going to be an unskilled laborer or something like that. So your salary is going to be, is going to be low, and all you know he's very pragmatic. Basically, that's yeah. his concern. But he sees you know Jungo's determination. Says, you know, I'll work hard. We'll make do, but we will succeed. And obviously, I think the film flash forwards." Presumably several years later after they've succeeded and they get married yeah. I don't know if, if gay marriage is legal in, in Japan or if it's only a symbolic marriage
2: i uh i at the t- uh, right now, I think it's like um city it's like a, a just a legal thing city uh, city ordinances allow people to enter into partnerships, so this flash forwards into a more uh, progressive and positive future where marriage that's i think i think I'm not an expert though. Go ahead, but even even
0: I mean I know that even in places where gay marriage is not legal, people still have those kind of ceremonies, just purely symbolic. Yeah, I know that at least you know in in the U.S., for example, before gay marriage was uh, legal countrywide, the people still chose to have ceremonies, even though they didn't really mean the same legal thing that a marriage ceremony would. But anyway, anyway, it's I think it's basically the film the final scene is telling us that yes we are you know everything has worked out and that's yeah. I think that's kind of the message that we're about we're taking but before they get there it's re- the tension is really high and there's some very very vicious
2: shouting matches, especially between Jungo and his mother yeah that that kid like it's a good thing his mother loves him because any other parent might have knocked him out absolutely absolutely he yes i I don't think I would have been as patient with him.
0: Not that I know what it, what it is to deal with kids, but oh my God, he was so, 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 so
2: unhappy. So, so angry. So ready to fly off the handle and criticize his mother on every little thing because all the sort of negative stereotypes about foreigners have been inculcated into him. And he's so desperate to be Japanese that he just can't see things from her perspective. So like as a, you know, adults, as uh, outsiders, we see her struggle, we understand there's a backstory to her, but Jungo can't see that because he's so focused on his own inner pain, and then it's like his character development is by understanding what his mother has gone through, uh, he's able to lose a little of that anger.
0: Yeah, and I... I So so I think there is sort of like what, you know, the... Uh, there is some, what I, I would consider reverse the the... The reverse bullying going on here, whereas you know the the very stereotypical picture of bullies is that they are abused at home, so they project that abuse to other kids in the school. But now here is almost the reverse: is he is he is unhappy, he is sort of abused in various ways in the outside in the real world because of who he is, because of what he represents, and then he's sort of like he can't he can't do anything anything at uh, in the real world, so he kind of brings that in all to the only person who can lash out at, and that's his mother. Yeah. And there is
2: so many painful scenes to watch between them. And Yes.
0: And I think again, this is like the girl in the bulldozer, uh, this works because of how great the performances are, both of Jungo and his mother, whose name I also uh, unfortunately am forgetting right now.
2: Raina, who's played by, uh yeah. Gal, yes. who's like half Scottish, half uh Filipino. And she's a singer as well Our Japanese
0: was pretty good or at least sounded to me pretty good
2: yeah well she's able to switch between um, uh, Tagalog is it and um, Japanese quite fluently
0: yes and I it, it, it we kind of get the sense that the son doesn't
2: uh, doesn't speak the his mother's language he's been to the Philippines uh, but when he tries speaking Tagalog, it like uh, his mother mocks, makes fun of him because this pronunciation. Yeah, 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 that's that's kind of towards the end, right when they kind of have that moment together. Yeah, but uh, like if you didn't have that strong performance from Gao as Raina, like this, this would be a a, a horror movie. This would be like a,
0: a terrible Ken look movie. She she is able to hold his own against sort of his like like his rage. Mm. Yeah, there is. So generally, and I've mentioned this uh, before. There is. Um, uh, oh, okay, before I go into that, so there's. I, I kind of struck me. So Japan. I mean, I think I knew this, but I had forgotten that Japan doesn't have sort of birth birthright citizenship. Even though you're born there, you still have no right to the citizenship. But you do have right to the citizen to citizenship if one of your parents is from Japan. Yeah, it's, it's all to do with a family register and being part. Yeah, which I don't know if this film was criticizing about or anything like that, but it does seem to me that maybe uh, it is maybe perhaps a an
2: archaic uh, tradition. But yeah, it's that it's that sort of jungle's desperation to fit in somewhere.
0: Yes. Uh, okay. So what 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 I was trying to, what I was saying in a, on a sort of unrelated note is how I've generally commented before about how it bothers me when. Um, when uh, uh like young people or kids are given attributes of adults and here sort of a, a little bit of that is happening where we have the three kids so Jungo his boyfriend and that asexual girl who are sort of making such big plans and they're what 17 years old 18 um, 19 yeah, and I don't know, like I it, it seems to me that like most kids don't make that those kind of plans, but I think it works here because these are not regular kids, these are sort of marginalized uh members of community and and I I I have noticed both in real life and also of like reading about people and sort of understanding a little bit about cultures that are minorities in many way or marginalized about way that they don't sort of have the luxury of acting their age. They do have to maybe think ahead and when they don't think ahead things don't work out
2: so well yeah they have to work harder they have to negotiate uh mainstream society in a way that people who are part of it uh never consider absolutely but i i do think younger people are talking about these things a lot more and it probably reflects the way um young people in japan are getting into these issues i'm no expert yeah, of course. People of lower socio socioeconom- the lower in the socioeconomic scale do
0: do again. They don't have the luxury of kind of like waiting to see how their life turns out. They, you know, they have to make a decision. do I go to school or do I go to work? Uh, but still, I don't. I don't know that you know, like a, an, a like a high school boy would think. Yeah, are we going to get married now? Ah, eh, okay, maybe. I'm, people, I'm used to in the West where people do that are either immature or they do it strictly for religious, for religious, uh, uh, because you know whatever religion they believe in doesn't allow them to be together unless they're married. So that that's kind of what happens in the U.S. But of course, I am aware that we're
2: talking about different culture here, so perhaps the the, the norms are different. Well, that's one of the interesting things about Jungo's character, which is he tries to act like an adult, like he's drinking beer. Before he's hit the age of twenty, and uh yeah, he's challenging like older people, and um he's like taking he's trying to take charge of the family finances, but at heart he's still this wounded child, and like there are these moments like such as when he's cuddling his uh stuffed animals <laughs> and he's crying because his boyfriends um cut him off like you you remember that oh you know this guy's not just an asshole he's a he's a kid who's struggling with something.
0: There was um, there was one thing that kind of threw me off a little bit, and there did seem I mean he for for one one thing that we know for him is is a sort of an amateur photographer, and he has this Olympus Pen rangefinder camera, which is a uh, a fairly cheap film camera. Uh, and uh, but he also has I don't know if I misinterpret this or not, but almost an Oedipal fascination with his mother. Did you get Did you get any any kind of hint of that Oedipal fascination? What? You like how he secretly takes pictures of his mother.
2: Oh, like uh, they have that big argument Uh, on the riverbank. Yeah, and
0: how he observes her sometimes. It seemed. It seemed to. I mean, again, it
2: appears into a room and he takes a picture.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So a few moments like that. I think. I I guess you could just interpret it in many ways, but it. it, I I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. I was. I was. I was
2: wondering if you did. Sort of like. observing his mother, but never really looking at her.
0: Yes, yes. And also, again, I, mean, I guess the her his objection to her remarrying could be interpreted in the same way, although it could be interpreted in many ways,
2: I guess. Uh, like, it's probably, like, due to, like, sort of cynicism that uh, this is a foreigner trying to uh, secure their place in the country. Okay.
0: All right. So any anything else that uh, you'd like to say about this movie?
2: Yeah, uh, really well directed. Um, great pacing for, um, like, Fantastic performances from the leads, well handled by the director. And Was this a first-time director? No, no, no. This is like, uh, I think it's the third or fourth feature.
0: Okay, Izuka Kasho. I've I don't think I've heard of him. That's why I'm asking.
2: Yeah. So, like, um, his first film was, uh, was Our Future, Boku no Mirai. And it's about uh, his sort of um, experience coming out as transgender. And um, that was like 2011 and uh earlier this year he released futari no sakai which is uh another film about transgenderism but it's like sat over a period of like 10 years and i think this is uh his third feature um in oh, third or fourth feature uh in in between has been shorts and maybe one other feature so um operating since at least 2011 okay i think like uh you mentioned it earlier and i'm uh, I mentioned it earlier. It's like um, blurring the li- lines between like boundaries between communities and ethnicities and um, sexuality, and it's here. It's all here, uh, but it's all uh, molded together into a really accessible drama.
0: Yes, yes, and it's and it is the the drama is sort of what kind of dominates the film, and it's not. It's not. It's not. Uh, what's the word I mean? It's. It's not lecturing in any way. Even though it does have a very clear, I think, sort of uh, stance, but it's not lecturing. It is all done through the drama and it's a very well drama. Of course, you know, his identity is a very element part of the conflict, but you can sort of transpose it in different people and you could still work as a drama. And I think that's sort of like what makes it so powerful. That makes it relatable to people who don't necessarily go through the same struggles that these, these particular individuals, these
2: particular characters are going through. But you could watch it. You could sit someone down and you can explain, this is how prejudice works to marginalize people and make their lives harder. Absolutely. So yeah, the didacticism doesn't take you out of the drama. You These are still real characters you feel could continue living after the film's finished. That's why it's my number two and your number one. <laughs> and uh, number one for you is Girl on a Bulldozer.
0: Yeah, which we already talked about.
2: Yep. So
0: I think that, was, uh, that were our top five movies. So why don't we... So those were our favorites. And you know, for me, it was mostly a, a partly a limitation of what I, I was able to watch. Uh, but why don't we... Jason, why don't you go over what awards were uh, awarded? I think just today or yesterday, perhaps, depending on what time zone
2: you're in. So yesterday in Japan, um, today for the two of us. Um, so the Grand Prix, the Best Picture Award, went to Alona's a uh, Korean film by Hong Sung Yoon. Uh, Which was another one I was not able to watch. Uh, I think it's available on Netflix, Korea. And uh, she's, a, she's a female director, and it was like uh, uh, her debut um, straight out of like uh, film school. Mm. And it's like a perfect, uh, like within the story of a woman um, sort of reassessing her life and her isolation as she lives in Seoul. And um, she, she lives quite a lonely life. It's like a, a really good, uh, sort of, uh, demonstration of how capitalism sort of atomizes us and, uh, well, creates an atomized society, uh, because the main character's like, um, totally dedicated to a job or looking at screens and she's unaware of the people around her until the people around her start dying and, um, she has to start, uh, training a, a younger version of herself. And, um, I, uh, yeah, it's kind of like uh, an analysis of how people become lonely in a modern uh, capitalist society or a modern society. So profound uh, themes, uh, social criticism, and uh, really well written because it hinges upon like three or four characters who act as uh, mirrors to the main character who's uh, who conducts herself in a way that has allowed herself to be isolated so the younger character she has to take care of is like a um an earlier version of herself who's more innocent who could go along the same path uh and she realizes uh the main character realizes she doesn't want that to happen and um like there's a a next door neighbor who um helps her sort of um break out of her isolated way of living so uh the most promising talent award went to Kasho izuka the the director of angry son
1: okay uh
2: and uh also in the competition um the film anita got a special mention so that's the the... biopic about um anita mui yeah the pop star yeah canto, canto pop queen yeah so like uh leslie chung's uh close confidant. um She's like described as the Madonna of the East. Um, she's uh, an actress as well. Um, uh, she's in the Heroic Trio movies, um, and Justice My Foot, Stephen Steven Chan, Uh numerous yep. other films. Um, and it's kind of like a, a, what you would expect from a, a biopic, which is it crams a lot of her life into a short running time.
0: Which is uh, one reason why I generally don't like biopics.
2: Yeah, I felt like it might work better as a... Uh, a documentary, because the um, the actual footage of Anita Mui performing was really electrifying, but there 's still a strong performance by the main character, and the recreation of like Hong Kong of the eighties and nineties was uh impressive and, I see yeah, I think for people who don 't know too much about her, this is a a really good primer of into her career so uh the ABC TV award went to the first girl I loved. So like that ambiguity probably helped it uh sell it to uh, uh, uh like a wide audience. Uh this should be shown on TV in um Japan. Oh no, okay. Uh Yakushi Pearl Award, um uh which is uh given to performers, went to and uh forgive me for pronunciation, but byateg uh by a jargal, uh for the Mongolian film The Sales Girl, which is about uh humble and meek. Uh, physicist, physics student, uh, at university who takes on part-time work, uh, in a sex shop. And, uh, it's like the blossoming of her character. She discovers another side to herself. And, um, it's actually, uh, it's not as creepy as it sounds. It's really well, um, directed. Um, it doesn't feel exploitative in any way. And there's, uh, the performance, uh, which, uh, yeah, it did, it did deserve an award. I really convinces and, uh, yeah, yeah. This was uh, this
0: was another one that I was looking forward to watch, but it's one of those that I never I never heard back. So maybe they'll get back to me again for this one. Oh, yeah. i get to one because the premise sounded interesting.
2: Or maybe New York Asian Film Festival because it shows you another side to life in Mongolia. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, the Japan Cuts Awards for um, Japanese indie films went to Sanka Nomads of the Mountains. Okay, by Ryohei Sasatani, um, which was. Uh, so this means it will be screened at Japan Cuts in New York. And it's set in the 60s and it's a time of modernity is industrialization of Japan's kicking into high gear. And you've got the Sankar people who are like uh, nomadic wanderers um, who have faded from Japan now, as far as I'm aware. And a kid whose father is a bit of an industrialist um, encounters them and it's kind of like the clash between modernity and tradition as uh, this kid learns about a dying way of life. Uh, The Hossein Short Film Award, which is awarded to any short film playing at the festival, went to the Ukrainian film We'll Never Get Lost Together Again, which is about um, a Ukrainian PhD student uh, in the Near East. seemed like the country was Turkey, um, encountering uh, a young woman who's also from Ukraine, and the two uh, getting into sort of touristic hijinks as they can't really communicate with locals. They're always looking for Wi-Fi and um it, I that was a short film right it was a short film yeah uh and it it covers it's sort of like um the near east from a european perspective and also how europeans interact with each other because you've got like russian characters and dutch characters as well so um and yeah i suppose like the the charm of it is like the ephemeral nature like that matches the meeting of these two people uh, the ephemeral nature of the film uh matches like these two people meeting in like a romantic holiday setting. Okay. Uh Hosein short film award special mention went to Junko Abe of Bagmati River. So again she gave a fantastic performance, really like interiority really came out on the surface of her acting as uh she presents this sort of um, small character going through this arduous journey in order uh, as she wrestles with her emotions of mourning her lost brother. And um the audience awards went to Anita. So uh yeah, I I imagine it's it speaks to uh Anita Mui's sort of uh, lasting influence across Asia that uh, people responded so well to it that um they like the Yeah, film. I
0: was not I was not surprised when I read that. It seemed it seemed even though I didn't see the biopic itself, it's it it was sort of expected that it would be popular.
2: But I I think it's harder for um sort of Westerners to understand but like Anita Mui was like uh, huge yes and again you know if you want to try to understand this film was a good place to start all right so that, that was it for the awards right Yep, that was it for the awards
0: this year okay so I think overall it was a very good a good experience and people people will be able to you know listen to this podcast to get an idea of the festival and of course read the reviews of the films on your website and on v cinema uh anything else that you want to c- conclude with? I think I think this episode went on for a little longer than our usual, but I think it's good because there was a lot to, a lot to go over. But any closing thoughts on the festival or on the films that we watched for the 2022 edition of the Osaka Asian Film Festival?
2: Yeah, I thought it's a, a strong selection of films and I liked that the uh, one of the major themes was um sort of like breaking of barriers and um between different groups of people and presenting sort of progressive visions of how people can live together. Uh, This turned up in so many films where you had immigrants or different ethnicities and sexualities uh, on the screen and uh, presented in a positive light or addressing issues plaguing society uh, in ways that are accessible so audiences can understand more. I think it's a good selection overall of films.
0: Okay. Uh, all right. So I think that was it for our episode. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, etc., cetera, feel free to reach to us to our uh, through Twitter uh, at uh, Heroic Purgatory All In On Word or at uh, heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com. Otherwise, I hope you enjoyed our discussion. I hope you have a chance to see this film somewhere, somehow. Uh, otherwise, everyone have a great day.